Let's dive in to these questions. I am so excited about this. You all submitted some amazing questions and I'm excited to answer them. So question number one, can you explain houses in your birth chart? Of course I can, my sweet babe. What a beautiful question to start with. So I will say that I'm going to be doing a series on the houses, so I'm not going to go super in-depth right now. But for the moment, I will say that the houses represent the area of our lives that the planets play out in or the placements play out in. So it tells us where in our life we're going to be feeling the effects of those planets or those placements. Would love some more info on tarot. Well, I don't know when this question was submitted, but I did do a series on tarot, so I would suggest checking that one out. So I'm not going to quite go in depth on that either, but definitely check out the series I did on tarot. I go into the history and I also talk about, you know, just how astrology and tarot go together. If the question was a little more fine-tuned, I might be able to answer it, but just for more info in general, check out my series on tarot. My husband's chart is the opposite of how he is. What do you do when a chart doesn't match? Well, this is when I would say that you should get a birth chart reading or have an astrologer look at the chart. Because when people come to me and say, this placement doesn't make sense for me or I don't feel like this, this isn't me, I generally end up looking at the chart and finding all these mitigating factors, the aspects, and just all these different things that someone who isn't an astrologer or someone who hasn't studied astrology extensively wouldn't pick up on and wouldn't know. So uh, while I'm not saying that your husband's chart might not be him, I'm also saying that there's probably a lot more in the chart that would change the way it behaves and that would line up with him better. What I would do when a chart doesn't match is I would have someone take a look at it for me. I got gifted tarot cards and I'm not ready to start learning. Is it bad to just keep them untouched? Absolutely not. You can let those tarot cards sit until you're ready. And honestly, I recommend doing that. It's not the best idea to dive into divination tools without having a background or without just feeling ready. I really respect your honesty. And I think it's great that you know you're not ready or you just aren't feeling up to it so that you're just setting them aside. What I would do is set them in a nice place. Maybe put them, you know, if you have an altar or just a special place, somewhere protected and safe with some crystals, maybe, you know, some incense by it, just so the magic, I'll say, within them just feels safe and comfortable. When you're ready, then you can go find them and use them and study with them and explore your subconscious with them. Sagittarius male and Gemini female compatibility. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a little slap on the wrist here, like tisk tisk. When we do compatibility, we don't just look at sun signs. We look at everything. We're looking at Mars because Mars is our sex, you know, our sex drive. What, what do we like in that area? And then Venus is our love and just how we get along with people, how we communicate in love. And then Mercury as well. We're looking at how do you communicate overall? What is your communication style? Do you like to fight? Do you like to cry? Do you like to do the silent treatment? That's my little disclaimer for compatibility. You got to give me a little more than that. But just at face value, a Sagittarius and Gemini, whether it be male or female, does not matter. They're a pretty good match. It's air and it's fire. And uh, Gemini is one of those signs that can be tough. 
And Sagittarius is one of those signs that can be tough, but when they're put together, they generally do seem to work well. I'm an Aries Sun, Gemini Moon, Leo Rising, and Aries Venus. What are some compatible signs for me? Now, this person gets a gold star because they did give me their Venus placement, so gold star for you. I did a little clap. I don't know if you could hear on the microphone, but I did. <laughs> I did clap for a minute there. With all of this, this is just fire and air energy, mostly fire from just what you gave me. Aries Venus is going to do well with other fire Venuses and an air Venus. But depending on what else you have in the chart, you might want someone who's a little more grounding. You might want someone who has some earth in their chart to counter, counteract and counterbalance all that fire. Again, need to see the whole chart, need to see where these placements are and what aspects you have, but I would recommend someone with air to really bolster your flames and to support you. It'd be good if they had air and then also earth to kind of be the anchor in the relationship. When will I meet my soulmate? When you stop thinking about it. When you stop focusing on meeting your soulmate. Other than that, I can't really give you too much info. I don't know the whole story. I don't know what's going on. And I'm also not a psychic. Never claimed to be. Not really sure, but good luck to you. Would love to know your top five favorite movies of all time. This isn't astrology related, but I still love it. I love picking favorites. That's actually like a fun fact about me. I love picking favorites of anything. If you give me a choice for a favorite of anything, I'll pick it. I'm not going to do five, but I do have three in mind. Three came to my mind pretty readily. My first favorite movie is Remember the Titans. My second is Moulin Rouge. And then my third is High Fidelity with John Cusack. I love any movie with John Cusack. I'm a sucker for a good John Cusack movie. And then the other two, you know, Remember the Titans. That's always been one of my favorite movies. The main character, Gary Bertier. He is number 42, and as we know, I have a thing with number 42, and his story is just really amazing. And then Moulin Rouge, the decadence, the opulence, the beauty, the romance, all of it. I love it. I think my three favorite movies also really represent my big three really well. The Sagittarius would be High Fidelity, the Aries Moon would be Remember the Titans, and then, of course, the Libra Rising, Moulin Rouge. My husband has an Aries stellium. I have Aries and Saturn in the seventh house, good or bad. This is actually a really interesting question and I love it. You having Aries in the seventh house means that the other people you meet, the other people you seek out, what's going to be reflected back to you is Aries. And since Saturn is there, I'm going to guess that your husband's either decently older than you or he uh, took a long time to get into the relationship, it might have taken a long time to find him, or he just really possesses old man qualities. He's a very responsible, kind of grouchy old man, but I get the sense that maybe he's older than you in some sense. So really, I think that's good. If you're asking in terms of compatibility or sinistry, I think that's good. Your seventh house Aries would be really happy with someone who has an Aries stellium. Does reality bending start with meditation? Absolutely, it does. Reality bending is something I haven't talked about a whole lot, but I do believe that thoughts create reality. And uh, there are certain techniques that you can use to help push 
reality in the direction you want it to so then you can make those moves in the physical world to make those things happen. But yes, meditation is absolutely the gateway to reality bending. Do you know any information on how the elements of the zodiacs interact with each other? Well, of course I do, silly. (laughs) Of course I have information on the elements in the zodiacs, and that is another podcast series I plan on doing. I actually plan on working a lot with the elements, and I work a lot in kind of behind the scenes in my own writings and things that I do with the elements. I see the elements everywhere, and I think about them in everything. So I will be giving you more information once that series comes up. Leo Sun, Scorpio Moon, and Libra Rising. I feel like a firecracker most days. Any suggestions? Yeah, keep firecracking. Why would you ever want to not be a firecracker? That's an amazing quality to have. You don't want to tone that down. And anyone who has told you to tone it down or anyone that's told you that you're too much, those aren't your people. Find people that love your fire, that you know, embrace it and that bolster it and that inspire you to take that fire and make something beautiful in this world. Are the nodes significant in Hellenistic astrology? This is an interesting question because I've often wondered this myself. I think from a purely scholarly standpoint and the ancient texts and things like that, the North nodes, I haven't seen as much significance as modern astrology puts emphasis on, but that's why I always say that you should learn from every school of thought. I myself, yes, I am mostly rooted in Hellenistic astrology, but I also do think the nodes are worth studying and I do think they have significance. Is it as big of a significance as modern astrologers would maybe put on them? Maybe not, but that doesn't mean that I still won't look at it and I won't learn those techniques because it is important. From where I'm at, I do look at them. I do take them into consideration, especially for my clients and you guys, the listeners. I I have to know these things. If I'm going to be a teacher, then I need to know all of it. And I try to do my best to always give you all of the information, regardless of the school of thought. I'm a Scorpio sun, Virgo moon, Virgo rising. What can you say about this? Well, you left that really wide open, didn't you? (laughs) So... Virgo, Virgo, Scorpio. Oh, I would say you're calculated and cold and manipulative and all those other crazy mean things that people say about those signs. No, no, I wouldn't. I would say that you are calculated, but in a very organized way. I would say that as a Scorpio son, I probably have a soft spot for you because everybody knows I love Scorpios. And Virgo moon, I appreciate a Virgo moon. Everyone shits on Virgo moons because, you know, they're not emotional. I like that. I like that they can walk into a situation and keep a level head. That's a good thing. I like that their emotions don't pervade and like permeate into every single thing they do. And Virgo risings, you're neat and tidy. Your outfits, no matter the style you pick, I just feel like it and it goes and it's really cool. So that's what I have to say about it. No question, just getting ready to vibe. I don't remember or know who put this, but hell yeah, I'm ready to vibe with you too. Can a healthy relationship be measured by the couple's zodiac sign or both charts? 
So this is where we get into something tricky. I'm going to tell you, babes, that, you know, when I was dating, I never, ever, ever, ever looked at the person's chart. I never compared it to mine. Nothing. I mostly knew just their sun sign because obviously I knew their birthday because like I'm not a shithead and like I'm going to know your birthday if I'm dating you. But I never looked at someone's chart extensively until I got married. And then I looked at my husband's. And honestly, most astrologers that I know do the same thing. We don't want to be influenced by the chart because at the end of the day, the chart shouldn't define whether you pick a person or not. Yes, it can help you learn more about them, but you fall in love with who you fall in love with for better or for worse. And I don't think that using someone's birth chart against them or using it as a ruler as or a measurement to determine if you're even going on a date with them or if you should stay with them is a healthy thing to do. So I do not think it's healthy. I think that once you are in an established long-term relationship, that yes, then it is helpful to do because then you are learning what that person is like and what they need and you're not holding it against them. So if they have, you know, say they have an Aries Mercury and you're like, oh, I hate Aries Mercuries because they're so loud and obnoxious and they're always in your face and blah, blah, blah. So you don't go on a date with them. But say you didn't do that. Say you put that aside and you're already in this long-term relationship and you're like, okay, why is my partner always so loud? Why do they come at me like that? Why do they talk with such like aggression? And then you can figure out like, oh, They just have an Aries Mercury and that's how they express themselves. They're not doing it to be mean and they're not doing it, you know, to be out of control. And then you can talk with them about it and you can say, look, I know this is how you typically express yourself, but I would like it maybe if we could work on that because, you know, my Mercury and Cancer gets hurt very easily or, you know, whatever the situation may be. So no, I do not think it's healthy to measure a couple's birth chart or like the the destiny of the relationship by the birth chart. I think birth charts should be used to better understand each other, not decide if we're going to go on a date or not. Are twin flames real? Oh boy, did we just open a can of worms with this one, my babes. I have very, and I mean very strong feelings about the concept of twin flames. So buckle the fuck up. Twin flames, for those of you that don't know, are a concept that I don't know when it decided to seep into the internet and like get into everybody's head, but it happened. And let me just tell you what it means to be a twin flame. The first problem with twin flames is that you have to be half of a soul. You have to be an incomplete human for the concept of twin flames to be real. Now, if that isn't a big red flag in itself, and if you could see me right now, I'm like waving flags. I'm sitting here with my microphone just like waving imaginary red flags. Yeah, it's a thing. That's what twin flames mean. It means that you have to be half a soul because the the weird origin story is that the gods were jealous of humans because they had two heads and four arms and four legs and they were so powerful so they split them apart and then they had to be like separated forever so they could never contend with the gods and then you're like meant to search for your other half the rest of your life and you're just like this incomplete soul 
but then when you find your other half, you like hate each other and you're super toxic and one of you is always like running away from the other one. It's just this concept that I don't know who came up with it, but it is an excuse to be in a toxic, abusive relationship. That's all twin flames are. So no, twin flames are not real. You know what is real? Therapy. You know what is real? Not accepting less than you deserve. You know what is real? Not twin flames. Anything but twin flames. The most I'll go is karmic partners. Because I do believe in soul mates, and I say that with an S. There are many, many people in this world that we are meant to connect with and not even on a romantic level. Soulmates does not mean romantic, and there's not just one. We have a whole soul family. We have a unit. We have so many people in our lives that we connect with, and they touch our lives, and they don't always stay. Soulmates are not someone that have to be with you forever, and they do not have to be a romantic partner. Karmic partners are along the same lines, but they are a relationship that's meant to teach you something. You're not meant to be with them forever either. So that's as far as I'll go and probably the closest I get to believing in the whole twin flame thing. I just think it's a very, very toxic, and I don't like the word toxic as much, but that's what it is. It's a toxic excuse to bind yourself to someone who's really shitty and to excuse their behavior. So stop it. Everybody just stop it. If you listen to this podcast, stop believing in twin flames. End of story. What if there are houses in my chart with no planets in them? Great question. I often hear people say, I have an empty house. Nothing's going on in this house. Like, boohoo, like nothing's going on. I have empty houses, but guess what? They're not actually empty. So in the Hellenistic tradition, especially when you have a house that's quote unquote empty, you look to the ruler of that house to find significance. So my example would be Pisces. Let's use my Pisces house. I have no Pisces placements. Nothing's going on in the house that Pisces is in. It's in the sixth house for me. I got nothing in there. The ruler of Pisces is Jupiter. So I find where Jupiter is and what's going on over there, and then that reflects back to the sixth house. So my natal Jupiter is in the 11th. So the ruler of the sixth house is in the 11th house for me. That's going to have uh, certain significations. And again, I'm not going to go into it right now. We're going to do a whole series on that when I talk about houses. But just know that no house is empty and every house has some sort of significance, whether there's placements in it or not. Sometimes astrology is overwhelming. How do I know what's most important in my chart? I rather like this question too. Because astrology is overwhelming. There's a lot. I could study my entire life. I could have studied since like the moment of uh, being born, being brought into this world. They could have put an astrology book in my hand and it wouldn't matter. I'm never going to know it all. And that's why I actually love astrology so much is because my Gemini Mars in the ninth will never be satiated. I will never get enough and I'll never get bored. So for me, it's perfect. Overwhelming is good for me. But for other people, I can see how it would be intimidating to approach and it could just be hard to really even know where to start. If you're looking at your chart and you want to know what's most important, I always say to start with sect. Sect, if you remember and if, from when I did my podcast on it, I did that episode. If you don't know what sect is, go listen to that. But sect is just the concept of if you're a day chart or a night chart and that sets your chart up. 
so beautifully to understand what planets are kind of more on your side, which ones are acting a little more mischievous, and just what luminary you even resonate with more. So I would look at sect to start. I also look for stelliums. Stelliums are a bunch up of energy. I have a Sagittarius stellium in my third house. So I know that Sagittarius energy is going to be big for me. And I know third house ideals are going to be big for me. So sect and stellium are two of the big things that I really look at. And then I try to go through the aspects and I kind of comb through them and see which ones are either exact or really strong. So those are the three things that I would do to look in your chart to see what's most important. Can you give me your take on my moon and Venus in Aquarius in the eighth house, please? The fact that you said please is so cute. I think you're one of the only people that said like please or thank you and just my Libra rising really appreciates manners. So thank you. So your moon and Venus in Aquarius in the eighth house. So let's just break that down real slow. The moon in Aquarius, that's a very intellectual moon. That's a non-emotional moon. And then we have Venus, same thing. That's a very intellectual type of love, a love that is looking for more than just the one-on-one. You're looking for a partner to take over the world and make it a better place with. And then you take those two things and you put them in the eighth house. The eighth house is tricky because it's pretty much like people call it the death and taxes house. That's what goes on there. But it also has to do a little bit with the occult and real spoopy things. So for you, you're going to have a really deep connection to, I don't want to say like the other side or the other world. If you believe in that sort of thing, then yeah, but you will. You will have a deep connection to the subconscious world and also the world of others. You're just going to be able to see through the veil rather well with the placements in the eighth house. And with Aquarius, it's going to be really interesting because you might be skeptical about it. You're either going to be really into it, like you're going to be so deep into it, like conspiracy theory deep into it, or you're going to push back against it. Aquarius is going to go either way. That's all I can really tell you without looking at the rest of it. You're going to be really into spoopy stuff and you're going to be good at it, whether you like it or not. How do you learn all this? I want to so badly, but researching it all is overwhelming. Now, that's two of you babes now that said this is overwhelming, and it is. It is overwhelming. And how do I learn all this? Again, I really just chalk it up to my Gemini Mars in the ninth house. The ninth house is higher learning, philosophy, astrology, studying, and then Gemini and Mars. You know, I love it. You cannot give me enough to learn. This is my gift, and I am so grateful, and I am just so so grateful that this is what I'm meant to be doing and to helping others. I'm here because I want to help you not feel so overwhelmed. Look at my book list. Go there, check out the books I say to read. Because I'm not going to lie, it takes work. You can't just Google, you know, what is this concept in astrology and then understand it. You cannot. You have to look at your chart, your friend's chart, your mom and dad's chart, you know, your dog's chart, everybody's chart to really see these things play out and to understand them. Because it's one thing to look at your own and understand it for you, but it's another thing to be able to look at another person and see it play out in real time and understand astrology that way. It takes effort. That's really the bottom line. I study 
every day. I'm reading, I'm researching, and not only that, I'm thinking abstractly, and I'm also thinking critically. I question, I look at things, I don't take everything just for what it is. I'm constantly doing some sort of like thought exercise when it comes to the concepts of astrology and how I can relate them to myself and the world and my clients and the people around me. I know it's overwhelming, but you got to dive in. You got to start somewhere and you just have to read, read, read and read things that are reliable. Googling can be all right, but books and uh, just getting in touch with an astrologer is really going to help you as well. If you can get a birth chart reading from someone that's reputable, I think that's also a good place to start because then they give you a baseline, especially if you get a good astrologer that will explain things to you. That's a good place to start. And also this podcast. This podcast is a really good place to start. What do you think are the main roles of astrology and tarot in our society today as we go into the future? That's a really in-depth question. My goodness, I wasn't expecting that. I really, that's a thinker. And I just got done saying that I like to think critically and, you know, abstractly about things. So this is perfect. So the main roles of astrology and tarot in our society today as we go through the future. Well, tarot and astrology have been having a boom. And I mean a boom. And I don't know if it was because of COVID and people had nothing else to do or just because that's how it goes, it ebbs and it flows, you know, it gets big and then it gets, you know, gets out of vogue and then it comes back in vogue again. But right now, I, don't, I hesitate to say the whole like collective awakening thing. That's not like my bag. Like I don't really, I don't really do all that. But I do think that we are having a moment where tarot and astrology, people are flocking to it. They do want answers. And again, it might be these uncertain times, that kind of thing where COVID happened and everyone was really on shaky ground. So they're looking other places for answers. I'm actually really interested to see how interested people are in tarot and astrology after the life after COVID, like when this is all said and done and we're all completely back to normal, if there is ever, you know, normal, whatever the new normal is, as people say. But when that's here, I'm interested to see how many people are still on their journey of self-discovery or if they're just going to go pop back into the into the matrix and just be like, you know, I'm done with it, whatever. I was only there because I was bored or didn't have anything to do. I really hope that's not the case. I really hope that people are getting into this and take it into the future with them because they are interested in self-discovery. They are interested in finding their destiny and doing more than just the nine to five grind and following suit of, you know, graduating, going to college, starting a family, getting married, things like that. I really want to see more people follow their true will and find their destiny. So I think that's the role of tarot and astrology in our society. I was wondering about the different ways of doing natal charts, Placidus versus whole sign, for example. This is, this is a whole podcast topic in itself, my love. This is a big ask. So yes, there are many different schools of thought, and Placidus and Whole Sign are not the only ones. Whole Sign honeys have been, you know, coming out of the woodwork. We've been pervading. We've been, you know, we've been getting popular again. But Placidus is still the default. Placidus will always be the default. That's just a thing. It's just how it is. Again, I don't have enough time or notes written up to really talk about this in a big way because this is a big topic. 
Oh, there's a lot of differences. Just in general, Hellenistic astrology versus modern astrology is very different. They have some similarities, and I think you need to explore them both. So if you're wondering which one you should use, if that's the goal of this question, then I say you need to explore them both. You need to find someone who's good at using Placidus and someone who's good at using whole sign, have them explain it to you, or just explore it yourself. Try to learn on the fly, you know, look things up, buy some books, whatever way you're better at learning, do that. I say once you find a house system that works for you, stick with it, but definitely explore at least two or three before you make your choice. Do you ever use tarot in journaling? Does it help you out? Absolutely, I use tarot in journaling, you crazy person. Of course I do. I love it. I meditate every single day. I love I love my meditations. I don't know. I think the patrons know about this a little bit more than you guys do. My patrons have to hear about it a lot where I'm like, meditation, everybody should be meditating. You meditate, you meditate. We all meditate and we heal the world. <laughs> you heal the world by healing yourself. That's something that I talk about a lot on my Patreon page. And yes, I love to journal after my meditations. And oftentimes, after I meditate, I'm in a very calm and uh, I don't want to say like subconsciously induced state, but that's kind of what I'm getting. I'm very close to the subconscious. And that's when I like to pull tarot cards. I like to pull them right after I've meditated, right after I've cleared my energy. And then I journal the answers, the responses. And it helps me out a lot. Being able to journal my meditations and my tarot card responses helps me see patterns. And it helps me see, you know, what's relevant in my life right now and what direction I'm going and if I'm staying aligned or not. Being in alignment is really important for me. So seeing those patterns and knowing what's going on in my subconscious helps me stay aligned. How can you tell what aspects dominate your chart? Beautiful question, my love. Beautiful question. So this is really easy. In whatever app you're using or however you uh, calculate your chart, there should be something called aspect orbs. So the orbs are what tell us how strong the aspect is. The tighter the orb, the stronger the aspect. Generally, most astrologers use an aspect orb of six to eight, sometimes five, depending. It's all different. Everybody has their different methods. The smaller the orb, so the tighter it is, the closer it is to 0.0 degrees, the stronger the aspect is. The larger the number, so if it goes from, you know, say you have an aspect that's 1.3 degrees, that's really strong. And then you have an aspect that's, you know, 6.8 degrees that's getting to be like a medium aspect and then you have one that's like maybe nine degrees that's a weaker aspect it's still an aspect but it's just not as strong the ones that dominate your chart are going to be the ones that are really really tight have a tight orb and tight orb means a low number so a low amount of degrees of separation do different horoscopes apply to sun moon and rising yes 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 absolutely Most horoscopes are actually written from the perspective of the rising sign. This is why it's so absolutely critical and important to look at your rising sign for horoscopes if you know it. That's a really big thing. I was preaching that for a good period of time where I was like, please look at your rising sign. And again, that's something my patrons hear more often because they get horoscopes every month. 
So I'm always like, please look at your rising sign. If you don't know your rising sign, then look at either your sun or your moon, depending on the sect of your chart. If you are a day chart, I do say to look at your sun sign. If you're a night chart, I do say to look at your moon sign. But rising is always first. Dreaming of things and then they happen a lot lately, especially when it has to do with people being pregnant. Now, I don't know your situation. I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know if you're trying to become pregnant or there's just pregnant people everywhere around you. But that's not the vibe I'm getting from these dreams. And I'm just speaking straight from my intuitive cuff here. But this is what I get for this. I get that you personally are more birthing an idea or a passion or something that has nothing to do with a child. You are maybe trying to start a business or just something, again, that doesn't have to do with a child necessarily, but something that is very important to you. You're birthing an idea or a passion, and maybe it's not taking off right now. It's not, you know, the rubber isn't hitting the asphalt. Is that a saying? I, I, don't, I think that's a saying. <laughs> but basically, you're not getting any traction. And maybe you see the people around you succeeding at something that you want to succeed at. That's what I would take from this dream. Unless I'm completely way off base and you are trying to get pregnant. I mean, I don't think you would have asked that question if that was the case, but that could be it too. But I really think it has to do more with you birthing some sort of idea or passion and it's just not quite happening yet. Stick with it. Follow your intuition, stick with it, and just allow the gestation period to take its course. And this is the last question for today, my loves. Thank you so much for tuning in and just listening to these. I had a really fun time answering them. And we're going to round it out here with this last question. What's your favorite way to reality bend? Oh, man. We talked about this a little bit in the beginning, but I'm going to expand on it. So obviously, meditation is big for me. Meditation and visualization. So I visualize while I'm meditating. That's really the process of my reality bending. And uh, I go to a place called the garden in my mind a lot of the times. It looks like my real life garden. It's pretty much the same. But in that garden, when I walk in, and I always do this from first person, you never visualize third person. You never watch yourself doing something like an out of body you experience it. You see it through your eyes. So that's a very important piece of this visualization, I should tell you. If you do these exercises, always try to imagine it through your own eyes. So I walk into this garden in my mind and I look around and I just see how things are growing. There's little labels on certain pots and there's boxes and there's just like certain sections and rows that have my certain goals and things that I'm trying to achieve right now. And I can see them growing. I can see whether they're wilting, whether I've ignored a certain aspect of my psyche or a certain goal that I no longer care about. And if it's wilted and it's like completely dead, then, you know, we discard it, we compost it, we take that energy and we get rid of it and we recycle it. But if it's thriving, you know, I water it and I tend to it. And I think about in that moment what that would be like, what that goal would be like if it had been achieved and when it will be achieved. And then I just kind of move things around in the garden, you know, pull any weeds, pull any bad vibes, things like that. So that's one technique I use. The other technique is by a man called Neville Goddard. He is a wonderful 
wonderful dude. Well, was he's not alive anymore, but <laughs> he's he was a great guy who had a lot of interesting concepts that I'm not going to go super into again because I'm not trying to make this question last forever. But a lot of the techniques I use for reality bending and creating my reality are from Neville Goddard. The visualization, the affirmations, saying things that I am. For instance, I am powerful. I am aligned. Just simple things like that, writing them down, repeating them, visualizing yourself as that aligned and powerful person and what that would be like. That's really, really impactful. And it's one of those things that I can just tell you my firsthand experience. It works. Reality bending is real. Getting in tune with that part of your mind and kind of tuning in the channel to what you want the world to be like makes a difference. And you have to, like, you can't just rest on your laurels. You can't just sit back and be like, okay, I thought about it. I'm done now. It'll happen. No. When you tune yourself in to that program, into that channel, then you start making moves in the physical, in the real world to make those goals happen. And that's the most important part. It's really about clearing your mind, tuning in, and then being aligned to the point that the physical moves just happen easily. You don't have to fight for it. It's not like you're trudging through the mud trying to make something happen. If you're aligned, shit just happens and it feels right and it feels good. You don't have to force it if you're aligned. That was the end. That was it. This was the Q&A episode, the first Q&A episode. You all had some great questions. I hope I answered them well, and I hope anyone that didn't submit questions enjoyed the episode regardless. And then next time, make sure you submit some so I can answer them. If you want to submit questions at any point in time for future Q&A episodes, you can find me on Instagram at moonmatters.astro, and I'd be happy to just write them down and, you know, keep them for a later date. Or if you just want to pop by and say hi, you can do that too. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to iTunes and leave me a rating and or review. I would appreciate that so much. All right, my babes, later days. Bye.